How about now? Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Fantastic. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it is so great to be with all of you. We are going to look at an amazing story in God's Word today. So if you don't have a copy, go ahead and raise your hands, and we've got some ushers coming down the aisle. They would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. Once you have that, go ahead and open it up to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6, looking at an amazing story in God's Word. My... um. My dad, um, he grew up in Chicago in this um, large German-Polish family, and, and I mean large in a couple senses. First of all, it was a pretty big family. There were about six kids in the family, uh, and they were also uh, physically imposing as well. In fact, here's a picture uh, with me and my dad and uh, his brother and my cousin uh, just the other week, just a few weeks ago. Do you remember that segment in Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the… Remember that? Can you guess which one of these four guys didn't play football? Yeah, that'd be the guy in the hat. That'd be me. And so anyway, my dad, he grew up in this big family uh, in Chicago, and um, one of my favorite stories that my dad tells me uh, involves uh, him, his brothers, and some fireworks, Okay. And so, so they're eight, nine, ten years old, and they're living in the city of Chicago, and they somehow get their hands on some fireworks. And I love the somehow part of that story because I've never heard exactly how they got the fireworks or who gave them the fireworks, but they get these fireworks and they start to light them off. And all things considered, it's going pretty well, okay? Now, they, they didn't have any major fireworks. They didn't have like you know, those big fireworks that shoot up in the air. They had the ones, the, the ones that shoot sparklers out around, and they had, you know, the bottle rockets and some smoke bombs, and they're lighting these things off. And while they're doing that, my, my dad, my nine-year-old version of my dad, has the brilliant idea of, of gathering together all of the smoke bombs, breaking them open, and pouring the smoke powder into a pile so he can light it off and create this big cloud of smoke that they can all run through and play in. And so he gets all the smoke bombs, he breaks them open, he puts them in a big pile, he lights his match, and he lights the pile. Here's the problem, though. Uh, they weren't smoke bombs, they were cherry bombs. So it wasn't smoke powder, it was gunpowder. And the way my dad tells it is he lit that pile and it sent him on his back and his hands were burnt, and his face was burnt, and he tried to open his eyes, and he couldn't see. Total darkness. And so his brothers, they kind of pick him up, and they bring him home, and their mom's freaking out, what happened, how did this happen, and they call the doctor. I'm just kidding, they didn't call the doctor, it was the 60s. <laughs> they didn't trust doctors then, I guess. Like seriously, they never called the doctor. And so a day goes by, two days go by, a week, he still didn't get his sight back. My dad, my dad, he was retelling the story to me the other day, and he said it took weeks. It took weeks before his vision started coming back. And eventually, all of it, most of it, would come back, but it was still slightly damaged. And ever since then, my dad's had to wear glasses when he's driving at night or if he's reading. That, that one accident impaired his vision, even in a small way, for the rest of his life. And I think we'd all agree that that physical sight, 
our vision physically is extremely important. You know, without being able to see, we, we wouldn't be able to see a sunset over Lake Michigan. We wouldn't be able to look into the eyes of someone we love deeply. We wouldn't be able to see the joy on our children's faces and experience those moments. Physical sight is so important, but, but as important as physical sight is our spiritual sight. Our spiritual sight is like a million times more important. And our, our spiritual sight is our ability to see God. And without restored spiritual sight, we wouldn't be able to see all the glorious and powerful displays of our God, not just in, our, not just in the universe, but in our own lives personally. And one of the most tragic aspects of the fall is that it damaged and distorted our spiritual sight. And to make things even worse, so many of us are unaware of just how distorted our spiritual sight really is. We, we think we can see things like God sees things. We think we can see clearly. We think we can see the whole picture, and that brings us to our big idea this morning. Our big idea is this. If I believe I have the whole picture, then I'll never see what God sees. If I believe I have the whole picture, then I'll never see what God sees. If I think I see it all, if I believe I have every piece of the puzzle, then I'll never see with the perspective that God sees. My spiritual sight will always be distorted. My spiritual vision will always be impaired. And here's what I don't want for us this morning. I I don't want anyone walking out of here today without understanding what they need to do to regain their spiritual sight. I want all of us walking out of here this morning not depending on our own strength and our own wisdom to see things clearly, but I want us in a spot where we are crying out to God, God, please show me how you see things. And we're going to do that today as we look at this amazing story in God's Word in 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 8. And just to give you some context about what this story is all about, the main character in the story is this guy named Elisha. Now, not Elijah, but Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A. And he was like a protege of Elijah. And he was this great prophet. And his name in Hebrew, it, it meant God saves. And the purpose of Elisha's ministry to the nation of Israel was to, was to display the mighty saving power of his God to the people of Israel. And what we'll see in this story is Elisha doing just that, showing how distorted our spiritual sight can be and what we can do to correct it and to regain our spiritual sight. So let's go ahead and jump in to the text at verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Follow along with me. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But... The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of, sent, king of uh, Israel uh, sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved, him, uh, saved himself there more than once or twice. 
And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And so what the king of Syria thinks is happening right now is he thinks there's a spy in his midst. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, no, no, none. None, my Lord, but it's Elisha. It's the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He reads all of your text messages and he, he, he's tapped into your phone. He's like the original Israeli NSA. <laughs> Verse 13, and he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. Remember that name? Verse 14, so he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and they surrounded the city. And so let's stop there because the first thing I want us to see in this passage is this. Um, I need to understand that there's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to me. I need to understand that there's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to me. I need to accept the fact that there are forces at work beyond what I can see, beyond what I can hear, beyond what I can feel. If we take a look again at the king of Syria and his response to this circumstance, we see him and this king, he's just doing king things, okay? King of Syria is a king of this sort of powerful nation called Syria and all he's trying to do is take over Israel. And so he's plotting and he's scheming and he's gathering together his generals and he's saying, hey, here's, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to go to this place, fight the army of Israel, let's take over this nation. And so the first time he does this, he, he sends them out and they go and he's pretty confident, oh, the nation of Israel, they're going to be right here. Their armies are going to be right here. And he sends them out and, and they go and they're not. And so at that moment, he's probably just thinking they got lucky. It happens. It's just, it's just part of warfare. We're going to miss once in a while. They got lucky. The second time he sends them out and they're not where he thought they would be, he's got to be thinking, their general's pretty smart. Like, this isn't just luck at this point. Like, this guy, whoever's running that army, he, he knows what's up. But eventually, the law of averages starts to come into play and you're, you're going to meet up with this army eventually, but the third time, the fourth time, the, the fifth time, and at that point, the king of Syria, he starts to get suspicious. He's, he's looking at his circumstances and he's gathering information from his perspective and he, and, he, and he jumps to the natural conclusion and he says, there's a spy in our midst. Someone is telling the king of Israel everything that goes on in this war room. It says his mind was greatly troubled. In verse 11, then he says, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Because there's someone in this palace, on my side, in this room, who's leaking intel. There is no other explanation for why they would keep evading us. Eventually, we're going to catch them. Someone's leaking information. There is a spy. But he was wrong. What the king of Syria failed to understand was that there was a battle happening beyond what was obvious to him. He had the facts in front of him. He was trying to process what was going on. And yet he failed to realize that he did not see the whole picture. 
he was wrong. I just want to stop and ask all of you right now, how often do you operate in your life believing that you have the whole picture? How often are you processing the events and the circumstances of your life, the trials, your interactions with other people, and and, and you, you think and you believe that you're operating with the whole picture. You have all the pieces of the puzzle. And as you're processing, why, why was that decision made? Why did that person do that? Why did they say that to me? Why am I going through what I'm going through right, right now? Why is my marriage the way it is right now? Why is my boss treating me the way she's treating me right now? And as you process those things, how often are you sitting in a spot where you're like, yeah, I have the whole picture can I just answer it really quickly for you? I think it's most of the time. Honestly, I think it's most of the time. And I only say that because that's how I would answer it. Most of the time, I would assume I've got the whole picture. I've got this figured out. I can process the information and I can make the right decision because I have all the pieces of the puzzle. Here's the problem. In our own power, our perspective is distorted, and it's distorted for a variety of reasons. Here's one reason our perspective is distorted. It's distorted by my expectations. My perspective is distorted by my expectations. And then here's what I mean by this. We, we sort of go through a, an, an event or a circumstance, and we have expectations as to how things should go, and then something else happens, or the opposite happens. You ever have that happen to you before? Yeah, yeah, everyone's like, yes, of course, obviously. It gets, it gets frustrating. It can be confusing. It can be difficult. You know, we see this when people make big decisions for Jesus, big decisions of obedience, and, and, and they, they, they choose to follow Christ and submit their lives to Christ for the very first time, or they rededicate their lives, or they choose to get baptized, and, and they go into it, and they're like, this is going to be amazing. Like, like I'm, I'm surrendering my life to the Lord. This is going to be awesome. I'm so excited about this, and And certainly with that decision of obedience, there are elements of joy and contentment and peace that go along with all of that. But but what they fail to realize, what their expectations prevent them from seeing, is, is that oftentimes those big decisions for the Lord are accompanied by trials and adversity. Have you ever experienced that before? You, you, you step out in faith and you make a big decision of obedience uh, to the Lord and, and, and you encounter trial and adversity and, and it just goes against what you would have expected would have happened. Because here's the thing, your flesh is not used to submitting to the Lord and, and the enemy doesn't want you walking closely with your Savior and so there are a lot of forces at play. There's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to you in the moment. My expectations can distort my perspective. Another thing that distorts our perspective is is my position. My position can distort my perspective. And here's what I mean by this. Um, Some of us find us in in certain spots relationally or uh, in our work or in our family uh, where, you know, something happens. And because of our position to to the situation, um, it distorts our perspective. And we see this this with with parents of of high school students, middle school students. and, And they come in and they're like, my student is just just like defying me left and right and they won't obey and they were once like on board with everything we were doing at home but, but now it's like a battle every single day. I see some parents looking over at their high school students right now. 
But it's a battle. It's hard every single day. And what the parent fails to recognize because of their position with their child is that the battle isn't just between them and their student. The battle is happening beyond what's obvious to them. Their student is not just defying and rebelling against them. They are rebelling against their Savior, and they are wrestling, whether they realize it or not, they are wrestling with this idea of, am I going to submit my life to Jesus? But to the parent, because of their position, this is just a battle between them and the child. My position can distort my perspective. And one more thing, my limitations. My limitations can distort my perspective. And this one's a little more obvious because I think we would all agree that like, even if we have all the facts presented before us, oftentimes we just, we can't process it all. And, and we're fallen people. And, and ever since the fall, our, our, our spiritual sight has been distorted and we're just not able to process all the pieces. And you know, you might have a coworker who, who comes into work and they're always grumpy and they're always difficult to work with and you just think, well, it's just their disposition. They're just a miserable person. Or your spouse, for the last few weeks, for the last few months, maybe they're just grumpy and difficult and they're just hard to be around and you just must think, you know, that's just, that's just their disposition. That's just how they are. And what you fail to recognize is oftentimes there's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to you. And you don't know the whole story. And you don't know what's going on in their hearts. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is working in, in, in such a way where they are trying to draw something out of your coworker, of your spouse, trying to draw them to a place of repentance. And until we get to that spot, it's very difficult. And we can be difficult people and, and miserable when we're not being obedient to the Lord. So a variety of things can distort our perspective, our expectations, our position, our limitations. But the important takeaway in all of that is, regardless of how smart we think we are, regardless of how uh, uh, efficient or effective the questions are that we ask about a specific situation, we, just, we need to know this. We, we need to understand that there's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to us. Whatever circumstance you might face, whatever's going on in your life, if we think it's one thing, typically there's so much more going on behind the scenes. There's a battle happening beyond what's obvious to us. The king of Syria, he thought that, 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 that he had a spy in his midst. That was the battle that seemed obvious to him. This is the conclusion I'm drawing. But he was quickly made aware. One of his servants boldly and courageously spoke up and said, no, no, no. There's more going on than meets the eye. Elisha, this prophet who's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And, and so the king of Syria, he hears this information, he responds impulsively, and he sends chariots and horses and, and troops to go after Elisha. Look at verse 15. Let's pick up there. Verse 15, so when the servant of the man of God, so that's Elisha's servant, he rose early in the morning and he went out and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And so the servant's freaking out and here's another example of an individual who didn't realize that there was a battle happening beyond what was obvious to him. And so he's freaking out and he's looking out at these uh, chariots and these horses and he's like, what shall we do? But here's the most amazing part of this story. Look at verse 16. He, that's Elisha, said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more, more than those who are with them. And then 
Elisha prayed. And he said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. I love this part. It kind of reminds me of Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans here this morning? You know what I'm talking about? Like, these are not the droids that you're looking for. Am I the only nerd in here or other people with me on that? Yeah? All right, fantastic, awesome. So, yeah, it's like, this is, this is not the place. This is not the city. It's kind of like a Jedi mind trick right here. And he says, follow me. I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Here's the next thing I want us to see in this passage. Um, we need to trust that there's a God at work beyond what I can see. I need to trust that there's a God at work beyond what I can see. Even when my circumstances seem hopeless, I need to trust that my God loves me and that he is fighting on my behalf. Even when I don't feel it, even when I don't see it. And so, again, just to recap, we've got the Syrian army and they travel throughout the entire night, the, the horses and the chariots and the whole crew, and they make their way to Dothan and they camp out around at night. And so the, the sun rises and um, Elisha's servant, he wakes up and he's going to make some coffee for his master. And he kind of gets up and he goes out to the porch and he looks outside and he expects just to kind of see, you know, the sheep doing their thing. But he sees chariots and horses all around him. And, and he's like, oh my goodness, this is it. This is how we die. I, I told Elisha to stop telling the king of Israel all of Syria's secrets, but he didn't listen to me. And look at the trouble it's getting us in now. And so he freaks out. And so he goes over to his master and he's like, wake up, wake up. And, and Elisha, you know, I can just imagine, he's just like, what is it, man? And he kind of like gets up. He puts his glasses on. He checks his phone for any notifications. <laughs> he puts his slippers on. He kind of like walks out there with his buddy. And he kind of looks out. And at this point, I just imagine like the servant's like dry heaving by now and like a cold sweat. Like he's just freaking out. And he's like, man, chill out. He gives him a glass of water. He's like, like, our army's way bigger than their army. Can't you see it? And I imagine like the servant's like, how much wine did you have last night, dude? Like, are you serious? And then at that point, like, Elisha's just like, okay. And he prays. He says, oh, Lord, just please open his eyes. Help him to see that you are here, that you're at work beyond anything he could see. And so he prays, and what happens? His eyes are opened. Elisha's servant's eyes are opened, and what does he see? I think it's amazing. In verse 16, what happens? His eyes see horses and chariots of fire. Millions upon millions of angels that weren't readily apparent to him in that moment. But as Elisha asks that his eyes would be open, his eyes are open, and he sees that there is a God at work in his life beyond what he could see. You know, it's impossible for me to know right now in this room every single trial and circumstance and difficulty that each and every one of you are going through right now. But, but, but hear this. That regardless of what it is, whether it's big or small, whether it's your fault or not your fault, 
No, because God's word says it's true that there is a God at work fighting on your behalf because he loves you beyond anything you can see. That's an encouraging truth that each and every one of us should, should take and hide in our hearts, that there is a God at work beyond anything we can see. I understand that what, what you're facing might be frustrating, that what you're facing might be difficult or hard or confusing, and you just can't make sense of it. But understand that the reason why it's so difficult for you to make sense of it is because you're looking at it through your own eyes. You're looking at it through your perspective. And your perspective, your spiritual sight is distorted. And what you need right now, you need, you need a clear vision a clear vision of your God, your God at work on your behalf. I want to take a quick break, and I want, to, I want to do a pop quiz. Can we do a pop quiz real quick? Is that okay? Take a deep breath and do a pop quiz? Okay, here's the question. Um, what is the name of the town that Elisha lived in that was under attack right now? Dothan. Dothan. Fantastic. You guys are so smart. I didn't think you would get that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's Dothan. You're right. Fantastic. They're in Dothan right now. Um, follow-up question. What other man of God encountered trial in Dothan? Anyone know? Did you, I hear Joseph back there? Got a biblical scholar here, man. Way to go. That was awesome. I was going to give you my clue. It starts with J and ends with Osif, but um, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, Joseph. Joseph, you can write this down and cross-check it later. We're not lying. It's Genesis 37, 17. Joseph was, um, he went out to go find his brothers because they were working, and, and he was ambushed by his brothers, and he was thrown into a pit. And Joseph was like the golden child of his family, and he's like, why is this happening, Lord? What's going on? And what Joseph couldn't understand was that there was a battle happening beyond what was obvious to him. So Joseph cried out to the Lord, and he's like, God, help me, save me, protect me. And did God save Joseph? Yeah, he did, but not in the way he thought that God would save him, right? Like, he gets lifted out of the pit, and he's like, okay, fine, guys, like, I'll let that one, and then he gets sold into slave traders, right? And he gets sent all the way to Egypt, and then he gets sold to this guy named Potiphar, and then he gets accused of a crime that he didn't commit, and he gets sent to prison for, for years and years. And then he meets this butler, and this butler's like, dude, I'll hook it up, like, I'll get you out of here, and then he, he's forgotten by the butler, and he's in there for more years, and just kind of wondering, God, what's happening right now? I'd imagine he felt forgotten. I'd imagine he felt like his God wasn't at work on his behalf. But eventually, he would get out of that prison. And not only would he get out and be free, but he would be made second in charge of the most powerful nation at the time. God was at work beyond anything that Joseph could see in that moment. You see, if God had answered Joseph's prayer in the most obvious way, just sent a couple like friendly angels and sort of lifted him out of the pit. Like Joseph would have been saved and he wouldn't have had to go through all the trials and all the injustices and all the hardships that he went through. But eventually, he and his entire family would perish spiritually and physically. And for whatever reason, God allowed the struggles that Joseph went through, the injustices, the trials, the things that as Joseph was going through them, they made absolutely no sense to him. And God allowed that. So that not only would Joseph be saved, but his family would be saved. And the entire people of God would be preserved. God was at work beyond anything Joseph could see in that moment. There were chariots and horses of fire, but they were working in stealth mode. 
for Joseph. And you might be going through something that you don't understand. And it's difficult and it's hard to process. But you need to know that there's a God at work beyond what you can see. And you might be like, okay, yeah, you've said like nine times. I get it. Why, though? Why is God doing it this way in my life? Why is God at work in this way? Why does it have to be so difficult? Listen, I'm not God, so I don't know. I don't know exactly why God allows some of the things he allows, but but here's what I can say with confidence that I know about God. I know that he is passionate about perfecting your faith. I know that God cares more about restoring and refining your faith than than simply resolving all your problems. And oftentimes, he ordains struggle as part of that process. And what you need more than, than sight of millions of angels in your life right now is you need insight into the heart of God. You need a clear vision into God's heart for you. Maybe you feel like the setbacks that you're facing, the the relational fallout that you've had with that person or the the, the failure at work and and it's it's just going to, it's it's going to permanently mark you and and you, you feel like a failure and you feel so unworthy of love and let me just tell you that if you believe those things and you believe that's your destiny, that those are all lies. They're lies. Psalm 34 says this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you believe that? That those who seek, God's a promise from the Lord. Those who seek God lack no good thing. Run to him. He is your refuge. He is your very present help in time of need. And he is at work sovereignly working all things together for the good of those that love him. He will be glorified through it. Trust. Trust that he's at work beyond anything we can see. And and, and listen, not only is God at work in ways beyond what we can see But here's the last thing. I need to believe that there's a victory coming beyond what I can comprehend. I need to believe there's a victory coming beyond what I can comprehend, that I might have hopes and I might have dreams and I might have this vision for how how this whole thing's going to be resolved. And however awesome my victory is that I've planned out, I must believe that God's victory is is a million times more amazing than anything I could have ever imagined beyond my comprehension. Let's wrap this story up. Let's look at um, verse 20. And as soon as they entered Samaria, and just a quick note about Samaria. Samaria at the time was the capital of Israel. Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. They're in the northern kingdom. He's taking them to Samaria. It's about a 12-mile walk from Dothan to Samaria. So he marches them over to Samaria. And Elisha said, O Lord, 
Open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. This is kind of like an oh crud moment for the army of Syria, right? They're just like, they're, they're charging on Dothan. And that's when uh, Elisha prayed that, that God would strike them with blindness. And this blindness wasn't like absolute total blindness. A lot of scholars say it was more like a delusion, right? It was like that Jedi mind trick. And so they're just kind of like in this sort of spell. And then he kind of leads them to Samaria and he prays God open their eyes and their eyes are opened and they realize, oh my goodness, we are in the capital of our enemy. This is terrible. Verse 21. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? And in essence, what Elisha's saying at this point is like, if you were fighting these guys in a real battle and you captured prisoners of war, you, you wouldn't kill them. They'd be your prisoners and you would take them captive. And these aren't even your prisoners. These are God's prisoners. So why would you kill them? No, no, no. You're not going to kill them right now. Here's what you're going to do. Look what he says. Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when he had eaten, when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And this is the, the last part, really important part. Look at this. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. There, there is incomprehensible victory on so many levels at the end of this story. You see, the army of Syria, they thought that they would go in and that they would see victory by capturing and by destroying God's man. But what they didn't realize was that they would be blessed. They would experience victory. Not by capturing God's man, but by being captured by the man of God himself. And not only were they captured by God's man, they were led into the very heart of the capital before the king of Israel. And the king of Israel's sitting there and he thinks, oh, here's my victory now. And he's got his knife. I just imagine he's got his knife there. He, he asked the question twice, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He was so eager to chop their heads off. And he thought, this is the victory. This is the victory that the Lord has brought to me. But, but the victory was beyond his comprehension. Because instead of striking them down, instead of killing them, Elisha, the man of God, he says, no, 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 no. Don't kill them. Entertain them. Can you imagine being the king of Israel at that point? Like, what? Like, these guys have been trying to kill us for, like, a long time. And you want me to feed them? Elisha's like, yeah. Set before them bread set before them water. And the text says that he prepared for them a great feast. And what was the result? What was the result of that? The very end. They never raided again on the land of Israel. The king of Israel, he thought his greatest moment of victory would come through judgment. But here in this story, it comes through this single act of grace. And throughout this story, there are so many echoes of Jesus Christ. Can't you see it? That this army of Syria, they barge on Dothan and they're looking for this man and Elisha says, no, 
I'm not the one you're looking for. They were blind. They missed it. And when Jesus came, everyone missed it. You know, the Jews, they were looking for this conquering warrior who would, who would relieve them of all their oppressors and, and lead them to victory. And, and the Greeks, they were looking for this philosopher king who would guide them with, with enlightenment and, and lead them to peace and prosperity. But instead, they got Jesus Christ, a guy who served the poor, who ate dinner with sinners, a guy who washed people's feet, and a guy who ultimately died on a cross. Like Elisha, Jesus has, has taken you and he's taken me. He's taken his enemies and he's taken them into the heart of the capital, the throne room of God. But instead of receiving judgment, we receive grace. Instead of calling down millions upon millions of angels to execute the judgment that each and every one of us deserved, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in a moment that seemed like the most humiliating act of defeat, the supposed Son of God hung on that cross. It was actually God at work. It was God at work delivering the most incomprehensible victory this world has ever seen. A victory that would shake the very foundations of this earth a victory beyond all our comprehension. What we see in this text, what we see in God's word, throughout God's word, this is how God works. The real victory for me and you is, is not the destruction of our enemies. Real victory for me and you is our enemies turned into friends. And if any of you doubt that God loves you and that he's fighting for you on your behalf and that he's at work you have to look no further than the, than the vacant cross and the empty tomb. Real victory in our lives is not the simple resolution of all of our problems, but it's the Holy Spirit working in the circumstances and the situations and the trials and the problems that, that we can't quite comprehend. But, but it's the Holy Spirit working through all of those things to perfect and to refine our faith and to prepare us for that day of ultimate victory. Because there's a day of victory coming for every child of God when Jesus comes again. A, a, a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the true King, that He is Lord of Lords. A, a day where, where there will be no more anger, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain or fighting or disunity or abuse or hurt. A day when He will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. A day where he'll set out a great feast for all of his children. Where we'll see Jesus as he truly is and we'll finally see things like he sees things perfectly once and for all. Would God give us the grace? Would God give us the strength so that we would lift our eyes and look to that moment? That we wouldn't keep our heads down and, and look at our current circumstance and try to figure it out, but that we would lift our eyes and that we would see They'd fill our hearts with hope as we anticipate that great day of victory. But we're not there yet. We're here. We're in the here and now. And so the question is, how do I see what I can't see? 
Like in this moment right now, when I leave this place, when I go back home, when I go to my job, when I enter into all the circumstances that I've sort of forgotten about for the last 35 minutes, how do I keep my eyes on what's important? How do I see what I can't see? I just want to walk us through three quick things. Very simple. The first thing, I have to admit that my perspective is distorted. Since the fall, our spiritual sight has been distorted. It's, been, it's distorted by a variety of things. My expectations, my, my, my position, my limitations. And I have to humble myself before God and, and say, Lord, I, I believe I've had the whole picture and, and I was wrong and I'm sorry and, and my, my, my sight is distorted. I need to admit that my perspective is distorted. The second thing we need to do is we just need to ask. Ask for God's perspective. And you see it throughout God's word. We see it specifically in this text that spiritual sight was granted when Elisha prayed. When he prayed, we can't refine and we can't figure it out and fix our own spiritual sight on our own. And you can say, yeah, I get that. Like, I, I, I know that. But when's the last time you asked God to open your eyes, to see things like he sees things? We need to ask him. He wants us to come and ask him. And here's the third thing. After we ask, we need to ask again and again and again and again. You know, as we ask God for his perspective, we need to expect that he's going to answer and deliver and provide. And one of the surest signs that we are living in a, in a, in a place of expectation is a heart of perseverance in prayer. And in this moment, I, I can't help but, but think of my kids. You know, when they want something. Hey, Dad, can I have this thing? Dad, Dad, I want this. Can I have this? Dad, I want it. Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? Any parents know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and eventually, sometimes, it wears me down. And it's like, yes, sure, fine, just have it. I want to bless my kids. I, I want to love them. I want to give them what they need, what they want. I want them to feel loved. God's word says, if, 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 if we who are sinful know how to give our kids good gifts, how much more does our perfect father in heaven? Right? Do you believe that? And what he wants from us is he just wants us to approach him humbly. He is our loving father. He is fighting on our behalf. He wants to open our eyes. He wants us to see things like he sees things. So let's do that right now. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes and let's, let's just take this moment and just between you and the Lord right now, just in your heart, in your own way, admit that your perspective is distorted. And ask for his perspective. There's nothing complex or difficult about this. It's, it's just, God, I don't get it. I'm confused. Help me to see things like you see things. And in the midst of the confusion, God, help me to walk in obedience and to trust you that you are good, that you are loving, that you're in control.
Not, not only are you working beyond anything I can see, but you're going to deliver a victory beyond my wildest comprehension. God, we, we, we believe those things this morning. We believe you're good. We believe that you're powerful and we believe that you're in control. And while we might not always be able to understand it in the moment, Lord, I, I ask that you would, in your kindness, help us to see things like you see things. Open our eyes, God. Lord, we want to walk in obedience to you. We want to glorify you with our lives. And Lord, in the midst of the trials and some of the circumstances and difficulties, it's hard because it's hard to see how you might be at work in our midst. But Lord, you, you promise and you show us that even when we can't see it, you're at work. So God, as we wait and as we continue day by day to, to follow you in obedience, even when we can't see it, Lord, would you fill our hearts with hope knowing that there is a victory coming. And maybe we'll never see it this side of eternity, but we know that one day we will be with you in heaven in perfection. Give us an eternal perspective, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.